Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I have um, the honor and the privilege today of... Um having a guest on our show, which, um, uh, you know, who needs no introduction. Uh, I mean, really, he um, has, his career has been exemplary. He's um, uh, a force and a voice in our field, uh, has represented not only interventional cardiologists, but, you know, cardiovascular disease and cardiologists at large, um, very eloquently nationally when you know, every now and then cardiology has been at the center of debate, um, you know, when it comes to stenting or stable coronary disease or, uh, you know, some policy related questions or even, uh, you know, um, gender bias uh, within cardiovascular medicine. He's always been a very respectable voice. Um, we, we all know him um, very dearly when we see videos at TCTMD and, and other uh, cardiovascular research foundation uh, related educational material. Um, so I'm, I'm sure the audience may have guessed now by now who the, who the speaker is. He's the director of the cardiac cath labs at Columbia University Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York. Uh, it's my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Kirtane. Uh, Ajay, welcome on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me and for the two kind introduction. Uh, no, it's our it's our pleasure. We've been wanting to do this, and uh, you know, I I know we I know you've been busy. We've, we've uh, you know with TCT and uh, congratulations by the way for a very successful meeting. I know you're one of the course co-directors, and on the faculty, so it was very well attended. Some great science presented as usual, uh, you know, every year. Um, so uh, you know, thank you for taking the time to do this. I know how busy you are, so. It's actually you know, been great, and to be honest with you, TCT was a great success, but it's not because of you know the people that organized. First of all, that's a huge team of people, but um, I think honestly, it's the participation of all the faculty and the attendees, and um, as I said, the team from CRF that really puts it together. And I think for folks like myself um, that have talks and are yeah, more visible, uh, for every one of me, there's probably you know 20 people behind the scenes who never get any recognition who really put together the meeting um, in this organization so uh you know actually all the all the all the credibility is, is on their side and they just make us look good yeah i know that's uh, uh very kind of you and i'm sure the people who are listening uh would deeply appreciate uh, the acknowledgement that you've just given them uh so without much further ado uh, you know i wanted to you know just dive right in into you know, how, so, t you know, just a bit of your background, uh, I'm sure uh, people who work with you know, know about it all, but for people who see you from a distance, who see you on the videos or on panels, but would really like to know the, the journey behind the current Ajay Kirtane, who we all know and admire, 
um, sort of it, it take us back into, you know, how um, high school was and how childhood was and when, when really, when did you really think about becoming a physician uh, and then your path into, you know, cardiovascular disease and cardiology and interventional cardiology and, um, you know, to where you are now? I, I know it's a, it's a broad question, but we can probably go stepwise and, you know, we'll take it from there. No, no problem at all. I mean, I was born in the U.S. Uh, to Indian physician parents who came over in the late '60s, um, and for the young ones on the on this podcast, that's the 1960s, um, but uh, last century, last millennium. But um, yeah, both my parents, you know, were physicians. They did their training in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Northern Jersey. And I never wanted to be a physician because all Indian kids—that's what they did. They were going to be docs, and they were going to be engineers, and I was not going to do that because I was sort of a liberated, you know, first generation American and I was going to do something totally different. Um, so actually in, in college at the one very pivotal juncture, um, when I was going to be a philosophy major or something like that, my dad, um, I was local. So, um, you know, my dad actually asked me to, um, you know, come home for the weekend just to hang out and that sort of thing. I came home and, um, you know, he sort of, told me that, you know, organic chemistry would keep my options open. Um, and I don't know, somehow I was hoodwinked into believing that. I think there was an argument, but I was hoodwinked into believing it. I actually showed up back at um, college with a new pair of basketball sneakers. And I told my roommates that, you know, I, okay, I was going to sign up for organic chemistry. And they said, you have a new pair of basketball sneakers. And um, it, it, it certainly looked like a quid pro quo to them. Um, I didn't feel like that at all, but <laughs> I guess it kind of was. Um, but anyway, I ended up doing organic chemistry. I loved it. I ended up, um, it was actually the best class I ever did in, in college or anything like that. And I ended up tutoring organic chemistry as well. Ultimately decided to do molecular biology. Um, but after a senior thesis, which was required, um, I really got bored in the lab by myself. So um, I decided to apply MD-PhD and then drop the PhD um, which is financially a really stupid thing to do, but I did it because I didn't want to take someone's spot when I kind of felt that I wanted to have more patient interaction and personal interaction through an MD. So that's kind of how I got into medicine. Um, cardiology, it, it, it's, I joke that it's kind of the uh, Indian genetic expression that comes forth uh, when people are in their internal medicine residency, either cardiology or GI. Uh, and I certainly couldn't um, stand, stand the smell in GI, so I ended up in cardiology. Um, but I think the main thing I liked about it was there were a lot of trials, um, there was a lot of data, and there was a lot of things that we could actually do to help patients um, and also make accurate diagnoses of patients. So that aspect of things really um, appealed to me. As far as intervention specifically, um, that came on later. I definitely wasn't somebody in fellowship who, you know, loved the cath lab immediately. I thought it was interesting, uh, but I kind of like the cognitive aspects behind making some of the decisions, the diagnostics of it. Um, I did as a kid, you know, like to disassemble my watch and was, I guess, relatively good with my hands um, doing things like that. And so it seemed like somewhat of a natural fit to be able to use my hands during procedures. Um, but I really always liked the cognitive aspects and the fact that there were really so many trials in interventional cardiology and the space was constantly changing. So that's kind of the circuitous route to how it came about. Yeah, no, thanks for uh, taking us through uh, through the path, I, I think it's uh, always fascinating to hear, uh, you know, sort of pivot points in in people's journeys and careers when uh, they make uh, 
those crucial decisions that then um, shape up how uh, the the rest of their career is going to look like. So, uh, you know, thank you for um, delving into that. Um, it's it's also very fascinating for me that you bring up uh, the inherent genetic predisposition for a, a brown kid who happens to be in internal medicine to then pick up uh, cardiovascular medicine or cardiology uh, as a as a career subspecialty. You know, as in you know, because I was born and raised in India. Uh, my father is a cardiologist. Uh, and, um, I always wanted to, so I, I always wanted to do cardiac surgery cause you know, I, I said to my father that, you know, internists are too boring. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a boring sort of a guy, but, uh, that changed the, the, my decision-making changed when I was a fourth year medical, medical student, cause I didn't like the non-cognitive aspect of, uh, a surgeon. I'm not, not saying that surgeons are, are not cognitive you know, individuals or cognitive people, this is not a blanket statement, but just, you know, where I was training, I just didn't feel uh, the, uh, the cognitive drive that I could see in, in internal medicine to be the same in surgery. So I changed, I pivoted. Uh, but, you know, and then after, you know, when it was internal medicine, you know, it was pretty much written on the wall that it'll be cardiology. So tell me uh, a little, let's, let's, you know, I wanted to talk with you more about this, um, you know, what do, what do you think about, what do you have to say about um, cardiovascular disease space, uh, particularly being heavy with, you know, people of Indian origin? Because uh, I've been asked that question several times. So I'm uh, curious to just uh, to learn your thoughts on, on this. Well, you know, I think some of it um, is because it is very interesting. And there's the cognitive component, there's the procedural component. Uh, I will tell you that I do think that um, having talked to uh, friends and other people growing up, there is a fair amount of um, a prestige factor that goes into it. I have to say, I was, um, in retrospect, incredibly privileged to be completely immune to that. Um, aside from that one time with my dad in organic chemistry, my parents never once actually influenced me uh, overtly or any other way to go into medicine. They had a very interesting, or cardiology or anything like that, they had a very interesting um, background themselves. Neither of them worked full-time. Uh, each of them was a part-time person. Um, my dad actually had done cardiology, but ended up doing ER so that he could work part-time and be around for us as kids growing up. Um, I would say that, you know, yes, we you know lived in a very nice town and that sort of thing, but, you know, I, I, the car that we drove growing up literally had, you know, either a hole in the floor where you could see the road or a hole in the ceiling where, like, the stuff from the ceiling would come down on your head. There was like it was like the anti-materialistic thing, and in fact, it was like a badge that we we would always drive the worst car. Never really got that many new clothes. I had to argue with my mom all the time about stuff like that. And I'm divulging a lot about myself, but I guess the reason I'm saying it is that there was never once this feeling that you would have status in society or that um, you know doing cardiology would make a lot of money or anything like that. And so I was honestly completely immune to that. But I do think that. Um, for many um, potential, you know, immigrant cultures, the appeal of not just the money, but the um, the ability to actually, you know, have a respectful place in society, for instance, as a cardiologist, is something that influences many people that I've spoken to. Um, so I think there's some aspect of that as well. Um, I would like to think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a lot of data and that we can really help people but I, I think that there is that component specific with the procedural specialties of cardiology and GI that goes into it. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, thank you for, um, you know, sharing some of the insights uh, again, you know, from their childhood uh, into what may go behind, uh, you know, the, the decision-making for why, you know, I get, I, I get asked this question a lot and I, you know, I, I pretty much say, you know, I, I think it's, you know, to me, I, I, the, the perception is prestige, you know, like you said, I think it's a lot has to do with uh, the, the perception of prestige. And, but, you know, I, I also say that I think at least the people that I've come across uh, or I've met, you know, genuinely come across as, you know, people who are very, very passionate about, um, you know, cardiology as a specialty, because it is a very fascinating specialty. I mean, it's, there's something, um, you know, at least I, I, I'm, I'm sure it is for you as well. Uh, and that and that shines through in in whatever you've done in your career, but I you know I would I'd like to believe that it's it's passion driving a lot of it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, look, a hundred percent. Here's the thing: if you're a if you're a parent and you know you you have the opportunity to have you want your kid to do well and period, and that means well across a wide variety of, of spheres. So I think that it's it's no accident that there are other components to it that make it good to be a cardiologist. Um, but I think, and many people, when you're in it, if you're in a field, you better like medicine with the hours that we work, you better enjoy it. And what's not to like? It's a fantastic field and you really can help patients. And honestly, there's a continuity of things that, especially as a proceduralist that I sense, that's different than that in the surgical fields where you may operate on somebody and legitimately save their life. But then that's it. That's the component you have with them. Um, and that, that's the interaction you have with them. Whereas for me, you know, I get to follow them in the office. I get to see their family members and I continue to follow them. So there's that continuity as well. So, look, there are a lot of great things about it. But I think the, one of the reasons why it is a field that a lot of people aspire to be has to do with the other factors, too. Um, sure. Uh, so, so moving on, uh, I, you've touched a lot of... Um, a lot upon your childhood and, you know, also uh, thank you for sharing the story about your father as to how he chose to be an ER physician and uh, work part-time so that he could balance time between work and family. Um, tell us a little bit more about how, uh, how that shaped your, your childhood and, uh, and how that has trans translated into uh, you not you being a father now how is that how is how has your father influenced you um you know for lack of a better word um in into the father that you you are now um and, well, look, yeah yeah no i i think in in many respects uh, i don't think i'm as good as he was um because i'm just not around as much um i think that my wife and I, uh, and my wife is amazing, by the way. She's a, she was an ex-corporate lawyer um, who, um, you know, yeah, did as well as I did in college and fantastic public speaker. She's just amazing. And um, she decided that she didn't want to, um, to do that. And she wanted to be home with our kids. And so she's kind of, she does that plus four other jobs um, that she works at as well, but her schedule's a lot more flexible. So many times I feel like um, it's together that we're able to offer the, the family support that many Indian kids do get because uh, family is so important to um, our culture, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I moved back close to home, and so my brother, my sister, my wife's parents, um, my wife's essentially her sister, 
and their family all live like really close to us. And so everybody's involved with our family. And so in many respects, it's um, surrogacy for the kids. But I also do obviously make the effort to take time to spend time with them as best as I can. And whether that's on vacation or that's for concerts um, or other aspects of, of what they're doing that I'm involved in, I think it's so important to take it seriously. I will take a second, though, to credit the folks I work with, um, because many people, you know, see folks like, you know, Marty or Jeff Moses, people like that, and they say, oh, you know, they're just workaholics and that sort of thing. There's no way I could spend the time I spend with my kids had it not been for them encouraging it. Jeff Moses spends a ton of time with his kids. His kids are integrally involved in his life. He talks about them. He talks about trips with them. He talks about what he's on the weekend with them all the time. Uh, Marty as well. I mean, he has, he's got a daughter that is, uh, you know, a professional musician, his son. I mean, I know all about this because we talk about it. And so it's a side of them that I don't think many people know about, but there's no way as a junior person I would be able to do some of the things I do without being able to talk openly with the people I work with about those interests um, and those passions of mine. Um, so uh, I think I, there's a lot of credit that goes there too. Um, yes, no, I so again thank you for bringing up um you know uh, people like uh, marty leon and jeff moses uh, who are you know international uh you know phenomenons uh, in in our field and um it's it's very refreshing to hear that uh, you know it's, it's family time is is equally important to to them um and you know we we all know how busy all of you are and it's 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 very it's it's refreshing it, it's also it drives home the point that, um, you know, at least for me, and, and that's something that I've started to inculcate more, you know, this year uh, compared with previous years. And that is that, you know, when, when, when I'm home with, with my two-year-old, a little over two, he's 27 months, you know, I, I try to try to not pick up anything else. And you know, I just, away from devices, away from my computer, I, I just want to spend that, you know, because, you know, li like you said, like time, that I, at least I spent with, with him is very little is like three hours a day, two, two to three hours a day, maybe. Um, and I want that, that specific time to just be with him. You know, I just don't, don't want, uh, don't want any, any other distraction. So that even though the time is little, it's, it's high quality time. Um, so that's, that's very refreshing to, to, to hear from you. Um, you're a good person for it. I think there's just two things that I would basically say. One is that um, you do have to have the uninterrupted time. I remember writing a paper during um, fellowship and my daughter was, I think, three or four at the time. And uh, she asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm writing this paper. And she goes, why are you doing it? I said, I have to do it. And she said, I think you are choosing to do it. Mm. I mean, like four year old. So, <laughs> you know, I, I closed the computer and, I, and then I, you know, hung out with her. So you do have to have uninterrupted time. But the other part of it is that a lot of times we all want the time to be quality time. But if you don't have enough quantity of it, then you're not going to get it when you want it. So there are times when I remember I was free and I'm like, hey, guys, let's hang out and let's do something. And somebody has one event or somebody has some homework or somebody has something else, particularly as the kids get older. Yeah. Um, and then that quality time, even though you've gotten some quantity there, is not going to be quality. And you're, that's most depressing because you know how hard it was to get that time block. So, but if you do it enough, then each time you do it, there's an opportunity for it. And then also it becomes very natural and organic as opposed to forced. Yeah. 
So as an extension to that, let me ask you this. Do you, uh, do you make a conscious effort to not take work back home? Because like, you know, I, I always have work to do. I can't even imagine your schedule and, you know, the list of things you have to do on a daily basis um, or, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, just to think about it from a work week standpoint. Do you, do you make that conscious effort or is that, has, has it come to a point where it's not even a, it's, it, it can't happen in, in your scenario? I just curious no, to... There's, there's different strategies to it. First of all, one of the things that's nice about, you know, being involved in all the meetings that we're involved in, um, I've been able to ask a lot of people about what their strategies are, and I wasn't shy about doing that um, earlier on in my um, career, especially. And so I've kind of taken what I think is a good hodgepodge of good ideas that are out there. Um, so I think a few things. So number one is that if there's like an event that needs to happen, um, like a concert or something like that, Ted Feldman in particular told me, just schedule it with the same priority you would schedule something else. And um, that's important because then you don't bump it for something else that might come up. And for those times, yes, you try to be completely uninterrupted, not bringing work to it, not checking your phone during. Um, there are other strategies, like if you have papers to write or abstracts to write, and you can do it later at night, you can do it early in the morning, odd times. Some people always say, oh, you don't ever sleep because you send me emails at like three in the morning. Well, part of the reason for that is because I'm trying to preserve when I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and then, yeah, that means I may have woken up at three in the morning, unfortunately. Um, I do sleep, actually, I, I try to sleep a lot, actually. Um, the other aspect um, is that on vacations, for instance, I definitely unplug, and um, we try to go on vacations, for instance, where there's no cell phone service. So then there's no excuse or anything like that. There are other vacations where, you know, I'll get up and take care of some stuff super early in the morning, and then I'm free after that. So it just really depends on scheduling time. There's also a lot of things that we do that are time sinks that we don't necessarily realize. So uh, every once in a while on social media, for instance, you understand that you're getting sucked into the black hole of social media. So I'll just like last weekend, not check at all the entire mm -hmm. weekend. Mm -hmm. So things like that, I think are helpful. You just have to have a continuous monitor on yourself and try to be objective about what you're doing, what time you're spending and be realistic about it and prioritize accordingly. Yeah, no, great, great insights. Um, so um, to my next question, which I think a lot of the early careers would, um, would really value your, your answers and, and sort of how you uh, navigated that, uh, you know, that, that, that phase and that time in your career, because it's, uh, you know, I'm still in that phase. I'm two years out. This is my third year. And um, I've, I've changed jobs already. Um, and you know, the data sort of suggests that 70% of, uh, job changes happen within the first year of you starting a job, which, you know, to me was fascinating when I was going through a job transition myself. Um, how did you, how did you navigate, um, you know, clinical development and, and academic development and, you know, still nurture um, you know, a family, because, you know, I was listening to uh, Indra Nui, the, the former CEO of PepsiCo, and it, it was fascinating what she was, what she was describing. She was saying that the biological clock seems to be in complete um, turmoil with the career clock, because <laughs> it's like when it's time to nurture and develop a family, it's also time to develop your career and the two don't go well in, well in hand, hand in hand. So how, how did you do it? 
how did what were some of the conscious uh, effort efforts or tasks that you took on or not take on to to develop uh, that phase of in your of your career cuz i'm sure that phase led the foundation of where you are now yeah you know i think i've been very fortunate to be perfectly honest with you um i think that there are definitely a lot of smart people out there there are a lot of um well spoken people out there um there are a lot of technically good people out there and i happen to be kind of right place right time and things worked out um and that enabled me to capitalize um on things in that way um so for instance you know even getting the job in columbia um i sent my cv to a whole bunch of places i had written a lot of papers as a fellow um Mm-hmm. I literally like in the 20s and um still there aren't like academic jobs out there and it just so happened that Dave Cohen knew Roxana Moran and Roxana was looking for someone to help her working um in the CRF data center at that time and I happened to do statistical training and I you know that, that worked out and I mean they, literally I don't think they had hired somebody from the outside um in a really really long time other than like a super high profile recruit which I obviously was not coming out of fellowship so I think that um you know that was right place right time and then by coming here that enabled me and my family to be close to other family and so a lot of the family development part plus the decision my wife had made to not go back to work really helped me in that that way um I think the other part though the that you can sort of um um actively um do as a strategy and it's not as a strategy it's actually a, I think it's just good life lessons is I've always been pretty honest and transparent about um you know what I can do and what I can't do I don't overpromise and underdeliver like that's a cardinal sin and that that's from my parents you just just don't do that um and so you know when it came to doing certain types of activities or otherwise I would just be very honest about it and say look I I can't do that right now or this is why I can't do it and I wouldn't just say I can't do it and kind of hide I would explain why I couldn't do it and so interestingly when I started at Columbia I was uh, three days a week down at CRF working in the data center and um supposedly you know uh two days up in the cath lab here but you don't really get to just do cases we don't have a lab where there's just unassigned cases that go to the lab there were some things that i would do late nights on fridays and add-ons but i wasn't exactly getting to do a lot of um hands-on and i think as a junior as a junior attending that's something you really need to do if you're going to be a credible interventionalist and i had a great fellowship experience where we basically did two years of intervention coronary peripheral everything complex cases atherectomy everything and so i i what ended up happening is i actually went to um Jeff and Marty and and, and Greg and i sort of said look you know unfortunately i'm not doing as much clinicals as i need to do not that i'd like to do but i need to do and there may be other ways that i can contribute and i understand i came here as a certain role working in the data center and the roxana as well i told her um but i that's not what i ultimately need to be able to do for myself and so if there's no role for me you know clinically then then i i get it i came here as a recruit for for academics and research so there's no role for me I'm more than happy to say you know I, I go somewhere else and, and look elsewhere and I, and honestly I, I didn't mean it in a vindictive way it wasn't for leverage it was just being honest I knew I came for a specific role and I wasn't able to do that role so then I should probably go somewhere else and what was interesting is that I guess because I was clinically good then Jeff made um the ability and they all spoke together and made a made a more clinical role for me but because I was always academically interested 
it wasn't like I was throwing that away. I still wanted to be very involved and I had skills in that way. And so that's kind of how I was able to navigate the clinical academic part of it. I think that's probably the hardest thing for people is because we always want to have certain family time, but to negotiate between the clinical practice and the academic part is really, really hard because patients obviously take priority because they're sick, um, but yet you can't leave things dormant on the academic side because then they'll languish or they'll go to somebody else. So that's probably the hardest thing I have a problem with. No, that's, it's fascinating. You know, I, I think um, what's also really, um, you know, valuable about you sharing that experience is, you know, the, the honesty component is like, being honest to yourself and being honest to the people who you're working with and having um, a hard, con I shouldn't say a hard conversation, but a very honest conversation, like a very frank conversation of, you know, what you envision for yourself, um, you know, uh, as a, uh, in your career or, or as an academic interventional cardiologist. Um, so, you know, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's um, yeah, I, I certainly have learned a lot from, from that experience of yours. Um, no, no problem. I do want to also recognize, though, it does come from a position of, of a lot of privilege to be able to sort of say, well, okay, you know, I don't want to do this, I can do this. And there are a lot of other people who don't have the option to be able to have those conversations. And for those people, it's tough. I, and I don't have great advice for, for people who, you know, they they're depend upon X, Y, or Z, and their visa is going to get revoked if they don't, you know, do that X, Y, and Z. Um, so, for me, it's, I just, as I said, I've started off by saying super fortunate, the people I've trained, the background that I have, et cetera, that allows me to sort of just really be brutally honest and open so that the consequences are okay. I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in that situation. Like I, I have, I am, I, FD is one and I have to do clinical work cause I'm on, I'm on a visa, which is for clinical work. Um, so all the, you know, all the research work that happens, happens on my own time on weekends and, and nights, you know, like you mentioned earlier. And I, I, I'm trying to be in a, be in a situation or be in a position where, you know, at some point, you know, I can, you know, get at least a day uh, in a week where I could spend more time, you know, academically. But again, I'm, I'm still early on and I enjoy and value the time that I spend in the lab because, you know, it's, it's important. It's important to be clinically busy early on in your career as an interventionalist, you know, like you said. So uh, as an extension to that conversation, what do you look, because, um, you know, you obviously are, are mentoring a lot of the early career people and, and also fellows in training. You're the fellowship program director as well for, for interventional cardiology. What do you do? You specifically look out for junior faculty and and their career development and their career trajectory, and do, or do people seek you out in terms of you know having conversations like these? How do you how do you do you monitor their careers? Do you do they monitor their careers? Talk, talk to us a little bit more because I mean you're you're in a very you know academically very rich environment with with fellows and with junior faculty and. With, with house staff and um, it's a, I mean, I had the privilege of interviewing at Columbia. It's a, it's a very inspirational environment to be in. Um, so I'm sure there are very incredibly smart and hardworking people around you all the time, which keep, keep you more, at least would keep me motivated. I'm sure they keep you motivated. Do you monitor their careers? You know, for, I do. I think that um, I'm not, um, 
directly, I'm the director of the cath lab, but I'm not the head of interventional cardiology. Marty is, and he does. I mean, he, the amount of mentoring that he does, despite all the things that he does otherwise, is incredible. I mean, I've literally seen him, you know, taking care of medical students and, you know, uh, interns, and and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I mean, he doesn't have to be with these people, but yet he does. And that, he embraces that as his role. And I think over time, that's kind of what keeps people in academics is the ability to work with um, younger people who are enthusiastic, have that fire in the belly, are super smart, come up with new ideas and, and challenge what we think and are going to change the future. So um, it's starting to happen more for me now. I think now I'm kind of 11 years out from starting. So that's when people start asking for advice. Certainly along the way, people will always ask you, should I do this? Should I do that? And and happy to help them at all times. But um, it's it's been always something that I've done with our fellows, um, either our interventional fellows or general fellows who I'm working with in a variety of ways. Um, and as I said, it's what makes it fun to be in academic medicine. Um, there are a lot of academic, quote unquote, academic places that function as just practices, and there's nothing wrong with that. Taking care of patients is great, but the ability to help train and, and teach is something that I've always really enjoyed doing. Um, and I think I have a, a specific way of, of teaching that is based upon um, all the different people I've worked with. Um, and uh, I do enjoy trying to help convey that to trainees. Yeah, I know that's, that's great. I, you know, I was, um, I had this con sort of similar conversation with Dr. Kleiman as well. Um, you know, that episode is, was just um, released. Um, was your last episode. Yeah, that was the, that was the last episode. Yeah, and you know he he sort of you know said similar similar things. You know uh, he said it's obviously he, he tries to monitor it, uh, but you know it's more more so people like seeking him out and reaching out to him. And you know I think people in in academics um, uh, constantly you know at least at least I do. Uh, I'm sure others that I that uh, you know my colleagues that I look up to that I. Uh, collaborate with do as well uh, have a barometer um, i'm not i'm not trying to say that we compare each other i, I think comparison it should not ha it happens subconsciously but it really shouldn't happen I, i've trained myself to not I, the only person i compare myself is with is me you know if i'm a better version of myself than i was yesterday and then I, then things are good <laughs> um, but i i don't really yeah, I don't really want to compare my my career or, or my journey or my paths to X, Y, or Z. I mean, we're all colleagues. I, I really value relationships and um and, and camaraderie. Well, I I would highly, highly recommend, I mean, if there's one bit of advice is yes, be aware of what's going on around you, but absolutely don't compare yourself to other people because you yeah. literally um go crazy. And that's what can destroy a group is um, the quasi one-upmanship. And there are a lot of things that are imagined or perceived that are not even real. Yeah. Um, you just don't know the whole story. And so it's really, really important not to do that and to celebrate everyone's successes as part of the group. So if somebody does something well that's, you know, one of your colleagues, you should be happy for them. You shouldn't be then saying, oh, well, that I, I, I feel inadequate or I need to do X, Y, and Z. Motivation is great. It's good to say, okay, well, somebody did something, so now I have to do something. But certainly don't try to one-up the other person. That that never works out um, and really will destroy the group. The final thing I'll say is that um, 
on that is that, you know, Marty does. He actually meets with everybody once a year minimum, but certainly more often than that to try to um, get people's careers in the right trajectory. And this goes not, it goes into detail about what specific projects or one's working on, um, what meetings one is going to or invited to, what people want to do differently. Sometimes, you know, people say, oh, I want to do, you know, I want to be the tavern person. Well, we already have a tavern person. So maybe that's not the best thing for this person, but, you know, he really actively is involved in that way. And it's, again, the strength of his that, that people that have worked with him know about, but people that just see him and they view him as, you know, this rock star icon of interventional cardiology would have no idea that he actually does and takes the actual human effort and time to do these things. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I mean, it really is. So, so, so I mean, I, I didn't know. I obviously know him. I, I know his work. I just didn't didn't know that particular aspect of him. So, you know, thank you for sharing that w- with with our audience. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be um, refreshing for everyone. People who know him would know him, but you know, for for the ones like me who know him from a distance, this is obviously refreshing and, and very good to hear. Um, you, you brought up, uh, and you know, thanks again for um, sort of explaining uh, and also elaborating a bit more on comparison. Um, it's um, interesting that you, you said that because you know, I um, sort of exp- I have experienced that at, at different stages, um, you know, through through fellowship and as well as early career. And um, there's a there's a paper that's going to come out in in the European Heart Journal. It's an opinion piece which I wrote with another early career cardiologist, and it's called Schadenfreude, which is you know to to find joy in someone else's misery. But it's it's a very it's a philosophical spiritual piece. I'm going to share it with you. I, I'm I think you're probably going to enjoy it. Probably uh, request you to uh, share your viewpoints on Twitter as well. But um, I just wanted to delve a little bit more uh, on this particular topic with you that you brought it up is, you know, envy and jealousy um, in uh, amongst colleagues. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I think there should be no room, like you said. Uh, but I think the the root of such emotions is, is comparison. Um, and have you experienced them? Um, if you haven't, uh, I mean, that's, that's great. And I wish none of us have to because they're, they're, very, they're very destructive. Uh, and they, they also consume a lot of energy in a negative, adverse way, not in a, not in a constructive and a very destructive way. So t- talk to us a bit more about that, if you, if you may. Yeah, look, these are human instincts, and so everybody's going to experience them from time to time. But um, it comes back to conversations I've had with my my family, and they have always sort of said, "Just you know, you're you, put your head down, do your work. Good things will happen. If good things don't happen right now, they're going to happen eventually. Um, or you then figure something else out, and you always have your family and you have your base. I, for me, I think that family grounding that I always come home to. Um, and it's not just my, you know, my, my son, my daughter, my, my wife and our dog, uh, who actually, by the way, yeah, you know, now I can you know, even quote observational evidence that dogs are associated with greater uh, longevity, but it makes a big difference, by the way. But just the rest of the extended family, I mean, all that, that's who I am. Um, I've been at, you know, my, my kids have seen me lecture in the main arena and um, I, yeah, I thought it was a big deal. There's going to be a lot of people there. And they've told me immediately afterwards, like we didn't understand a word you're saying. And, you know, by the way, it's not that full in here anyway. So those 
types of things really ground you and make you understand that, yeah, we have a, a rarefied world, but it's kind of insular. And in the greater scheme of things, it doesn't mean a whole lot. And that I honestly gets to, you know, Indian, you know, if you will, spirituality and what we learn about, you know, just the Brahman and the Atman and all these terms that people may not know what I'm talking about, but it's just you're a small part of a very big thing. And they were all the same and it's, it's just temporary, it's Maya, and it's going to go away. And so all of that stuff, which I, by the way, I grew up with, um, is it brings to bear on these feelings and really allows you to just control them because they're distractions and they're just gnawing at you, and but you don't really need them. So I think that when you have those supports of your character and of your family, then it's easier, it's not easy, but it's easier to fight these bad feelings and to get rid of them. Yeah, no, I, um, it's, it's, um, um, you are, you, you are born and raised in the U S but you've impressed me with, with words that you've just used like Brahman, Atman and, and Maya. So yeah, kudos to your parents. Yeah, those are the three easy ones. No, no, no. no. But we, I, I, but, but the, the, you know, actually, um, um, you know, my family and my wife and my kids go to and teach at a, um, a school on the weekends where it's um, based on the Swami Vivekananda's philosophies and Vedanta specifically. And, and you know, all of this has been with me growing up. So um, I think it's actually very easy to apply practically because that was actually Swami Vivekananda's goal anyway, was to apply it practically. Sure. And Sri Ramakrishna actually as well. So for those that don't know what we're talking about, it's very interesting reading. It's fascinating. Um, but the idea really is, is that through your basic work, um, you can use that as a way of spiritual realization. That's something called karma yoga. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer in karma yoga, and I'm uh, I also follow the Gita, which um, I, I think is is a great text. It's very dense, I so say. You do need a teacher. Um, so I listened to a podcast by uh, an Indian architect by the name of Neil Bhatt. I He probably does not know that I exist. Uh, so <laughs> there's no conflict of interest there. Just wanted to make sure everybody uh, knows that. But, you know, I just I, I listened to his podcast um, as with him being a teacher because he guides me through all of the 18 chapters uh, of the Gita. But is there any is there any spiritual text that you read? Because you, you've you know, obviously I've known you as a, a phenomenal cardiologist, but for the, for the first time, you know, to, to me, um, you've come across as a very spiritual person, which I, I deeply, deeply value. Uh, so congratulations and thank you for bringing that side of yours to to the being uh, for me at least for the audience and for the listeners. Um, is there any yeah, particular? No congratulations. Yeah. No, no, no congratulations <laughs> needed. It's just what I've grown up with. And to be perfectly frank with you, um, the, the the I don't do enough reading at all in this regard, especially. So it's just a matter of uh, of. Uh, you know what I've, what I've been around with my family growing up and my wife is probably she should get her on the podcast she's much more knowledgeable in this regard yeah i know i'd i'd love to have i've 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 sort of taken the spiritual path i think it's almost been a close to getting close to be about a year when i you know consciously chose to read the gita every day and it's been it's been a paradigm you know because of you know what was going on with my life last year or so um, Ajay, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know we've it's we always go overboard because these conversations are so engaging because we get to know the the person behind the cardiologist we all uh, admire and 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 want to emulate. Uh, you know, you've certainly be 
you may not know this, but you've certainly been, uh, you know, uh, a silent force in, in my career. You know, people like you and Bobby um, are, 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 are folks that I lo really look up to when I think of emulating a career. So you've been a very silent Bobby force. People know who he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to give him his last name so he gets the full shout out. Yeah, thank you. I look, look, I mean, that it means a ton to me to hear that. Um, we're certainly not perfect. He'll say the same thing. Um, and we definitely learn all the time. And frankly, if, by seeing other people and, you know, not being envious or jealous, but actually seeing what they've been able to do productively, that you get more inspired. So for me, and that can come from, a, from older, that can come from younger, that can come from different fields too. Um, so, uh, you know, I, thanks so much for the kind words. It's actually really, um, it, it's nice to hear. Yeah, no, so thank you for your time. Um, and, uh, you know, hope, so this, uh, would go live, I would say in about three weeks, the, the next episode is with Dr. Stone. Actually, I could, I could snatch 20 minutes from him. <laughs> yeah. From his... That's good. But don't talk to him about, um, karma yoga and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So we've, we've recorded that episode already. It's going to be broadcast uh, before this one does. Um, and then I'm going to give you a shout out on Twitter. Uh, and if you could. Uh, you know, help us uh, spread the word about the podcast. That'll be phenomenal. So thanks again for your time. Uh, and no, uh, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. It was a fun conversation. And uh, look, a lot, lot of things to look forward to in the next few weeks. AHA is coming up. But besides that, just uh, hopefully everybody's going to enjoy the fall season and the holidays with their family. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's the favorite season uh, of the year for me. Uh, I, you brought up AHA. I'm going to... Um, and you are the guru for stable coronary disease. Ischemia is going to get presented at AHA. Any thoughts on ischemia? Look, I don't know. It's a long, long conversation. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have more going forward. But um, look, I, I think that this is the population you need, you need to study to demonstrate a benefit of coronary revascularization um, over, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy, if there is one. And so the big question will be, were the right patients enrolled in the trial? Um, and then also, was the revascularization done um, in an appropriate way? Um, but I you know, think, I'm sure Judy Hockman will say it, and I've had conversations with her directly about it, that um, this is what coronary revascularization is around the world. This is truly a global trial. And um, while it may be all good and fine for specific folks to say, well, we do revascularization differently at our rarefied academic centers. That may be true, but this is how coronary revascularization is done around the world. And so I think the trial has a good design and um, we'll see what the results are. So I, I have to say personally, although the um, prevailing wisdom is, oh, this is going to be a negative study, I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic because I think that revascularization in very high-risk patients, there are enough streams of data to suggest that there's a benefit. So this is the right patient to study and the trial design makes some sense. All right, great. Well, Ajay, thanks again very much. Um, and, um, you know, happy Halloween and um, we'll, keep, uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks. Yeah, for yeah, bye-bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. 
you will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.